This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There would be mandatory background checks on coaches of youth sports if two state lawmakers get their way. They hope to weed out sexual predators. Representative Jonathan Singer, a Longmont Democrat, and Senator Raleigh Heath introduced this legislation twice last session, and both times it died in the Senate, despite by, despite bipartisan support in the House. Representative Singer hopes for a different outcome when lawmakers reconvene next month. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So before getting into politics, you worked with Boulder County's Department of Child and Family Services, correct? Yeah, it was uh, Boulder County Human Services and the Child Protection Division. How did that work influence your perception of this issue? Uh, Hugely. I mean, this is the reason I ran for office is because our most vulnerable kids need uh, the most protection possible. And uh, the laws aren't supporting our kids. So I decided to step up and run. And secondly you really get an idea of how physical abuse and sexual abuse leaves an indelible scar on kids' lives throughout adulthood. It, it affects relationships. It affects ability, uh, an ability to get hired. It, it's something that we can prevent um, with the right kind of laws, and, and that's why I'm here. And an ability to get hired. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, when... When you're um, when you're stuck with those long term scars of uh, of sex abuse or physical abuse, um, you can oftentimes fall into uh, issues relating to mental illness. You can fall into uh, situations where where you yourself become a perpetrator, or you yourself are stuck in a situation where you can't get out of your own um, psychological issues, and that that helps or doesn't help. It hinders your ability to actually um, move forward with your life. So do you think that young athletes are particularly vulnerable? Do you count them in that number? Uh, I think young athletes are are the next target population for our sex predators out there. And the reason is, is coaches are exalted as as not only people who are trusted, but also in positions of trust. And when kids are looking at trying to get college scholarships and when parents are trying to figure out how to pay for college, they really want to believe their, their youth coaches can get their kids to the next level. Um, it, we saw this play out, actually, unfortunately, even in the U.S. Olympic Committee a couple years ago with USA Swimming, where you had swimming coaches who were abusing kids, were transferred to other jobs and other parts of, of the organization instead of dealing with the issue head on. And, and fortunately, the the Olympic Committee has stepped up and done the right thing. Um, but that leaves a lot of other private youth sports organizations exposed. You say this is something of the new frontier for child sexual predators. On what do you base that assertion? Um, some might hear that and think it's fear mongering. Well, you know, it's it, it's it's truth mongering actually. You know, there, there's 48 million children nationwide that are in youth sports, and sex predators are actually very intelligent people for the most part. They know um, where to go to get at kids. And that's why we have background checks for teachers. It's why we have background checks for many of our sports officials in our public schools. And now it's time for our private sports organizations to step up. You can look at news report after news report and see how, um, whether it's cheerleading coaches, swim coaches, or, or soccer coaches that have abused kids 
Some of them even go to jail, but when they're released, if there's no background check to stop them from applying for another job, they can reoffend and, and hurt that next kid. Well, let's talk about the legislation that you proposed last session. As we said, uh, you tried two different times and it failed both times. You're hoping to resurrect it in the uh, coming session, which begins in January. Uh, and we should say that this builds on previous legislation that did pass which made failure to report suspected abuse in youth sports organizations a third-degree misdemeanor. So that already exists in the law. Explain what your bill would do. Yeah. uh, You know, this goes under the category of, I thought we did this already. And and I give my constituent, Michelle Peterson, who actually works with uh, child victims of abuse and and sex abuse, as well as um, being a hockey mom, uh, came out to me and said, you know, look, coaches don't even have to report this when they suspect this. Um, so that was the first step last uh, last uh, time around. This time around, what we're doing is we're saying, if you're a coach and you're applying for a job, or if you're a volunteer working directly with kids five or more days a month, um, before you can uh, work alone with those kids, you need to submit to a criminal background check to make sure that you're not a sex predator or a violent felon. And what kinds of youth sports organizations would you envision this covering? You know, this this covers everything from from soccer to swimming to um, to you know horseback riding. Who pays for the background check, and how much would that cost? So, background check uh, costs range. Usually, they're in the twenty to forty dollar range, and you know that would be a cost absorbed by the employer. By the employer, uh, but it's an if it's a volunteer organization that would come out of their pockets. Uh, that's correct. It would come out of their pockets. Okay, and is that an undue burden that fee or? Well, you know, you compare that undue burden to the undue burden of of a predator slipping through the cracks, abusing kids, and and the cost of of that child needing to go through therapy, needing to go through, um, unfortunately, what whatever it was that they were experiencing. Um, when you when you take a look at those costs, um, it, it's far outweighs it. And the second thing to think about is, you know, we live in a society where we have certain expectations. When we drop our kids off with a certain um, organization or group, we expect they have a background check, and that's what one of the, that's what this is really about. What do background checks flag? What do they alert you to? So, um, depending on the kind of background check you do. Um, it could be uh, an FBI nationwide background check, as well as our state background check here in Colorado, looks at uh, domestic violence, sexual crimes, uh, violent crimes. Uh, and and what this bill would have done is it would have said, if you're a, a violent felon or a sexual predator, you're automatically excluded. The rest would be up to that sports organization to make the best choice possible. In a judiciary committee meeting of the Senate last January, Senator Kevin Lundberg, who's a Republican from Larimer County, responded to some of the testimony he heard and said he had concerns that background checks aren't enough to protect kids. Is this really the way to go? You know, are background checks really effective, or are they just uh, uh, spot-checking the possibility and we end up with the, you know, 20% possibility that we caught something? So he's questioning how effective background checks are, in part because many acts of uh, that are sexually inappropriate are not caught. These are not things that uh, one is often arrested for, let alone convicted of. And so that there are potentially holes in this. 
you know, you, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of keeping kids safe. Uh, nothing is perfect out there. But at the very least, what we can do is actually make sure that we have the bare minimum, bare bones in there. Uh, when I spoke to people in Florida, they, they have a similar law. Um, I spoke to employers who said, you know what, about 20% of the people that, that I offer jobs to actually uh, decline after I tell them I need to do a background check. They come up with an excuse or or some other reason. So people, A, self-select out before the background check even happens – but B, this is this is just common sense. Uh, you know, we we see background checks for all manner of jobs now. Uh, the fact that when we al- allow parents or or a, any kind of adult to work alone with kids, um, and we don't do a background check on on those sorts of things, that's that's not a nanny state. That's just uh, doing your your due diligence. I'd like to play um, something else from last session. Chris Bray is president of a Denver firm called Employment Background Screening of Colorado. Uh, He testified saying that he generally supports this idea, but um, he doesn't think it went far enough, especially the provision you mentioned earlier to us, Representative, that the background check applies to those who volunteer five or more days a month. The issue I have with that is that the sexual predator, and keep in mind, sexual predators, as the previous witness said, are sophisticated criminals. Sexual predators will figure out a way to only volunteer four days a month. If they know that the loophole and the threshold is five days a month, that's all they're going to volunteer for. They don't want to get caught. I think you described them as cunning earlier in our conversation. So why that five-day rule minimum, I guess? Well, you know, I I believe in, you know, uh, making sure that we can actually do something that both parties can agree to. This is not a Democratic state or a Republican state. It's a bipartisan state. Uh, we had concerns that were brought up by um, by Republican members, and we tried to actually make sure that we could address those. Uh, a lot of those Republican members didn't argue that it um, didn't go far enough. Most of them were saying it, it went too far. And, you know, I, I would love to I make mean, it was sure. something of an undue burden if you, exactly. if, you, if you volunteered for a day or two. Exactly. And so, so my job was to make sure that we could get a bill that passes. Once again, you can't let the uh, perfect be the enemy of, of protecting children. Have you and Senator Heath changed the bill at all since last session? Well, you know, we actually changed it um, moving from uh, the bill that was introduced in the Senate to the bill that was moved um, in the House. Both of which failed. Uh, Both. Both of which failed, but, you know, the bill in the House was not only able to get bipartisan support, but bipartisan co-sponsorship. And and so we're really building some momentum in a real case. And we even accepted Republican amendments to that bill. Um, so, uh, you know, we're going to continue to look and do research. There's nine other states that have different flavors of, of how this works. And we're going to continue to talk to our, our colleagues across the aisle to see what we can do to get something done this year. Very quickly, if this becomes law and a youth sports organization doesn't conduct a background check, are there penalties? Right now in the bill, there there are not any penalties. Um, the penalties would probably be seen on the civil side, and this is something that most sports organizations can't afford. So the least they can do is cover their bases. All right. Should, should there be teeth? I mean, is that a lack of teeth, though? Well, you know, you look at uh, conservative states in the South, and, and I can't remember, I believe it's the state of Mississippi actually has a um, penalty for employers who don't do this. It's five years in jail or, uh, or excuse me, six months in jail or a quarter million dollar fine. Um, 
once again, we're in a state where we try to split the difference between Democrats and Republicans, and, and this is a first step and a first start. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. State Representative Jonathan Singer, he's a Longmont Democrat, and we will cover the fate of his youth sports background check bill in the coming months. Earlier in our coverage of so-called zombie bills, which come back year after year, we talked to two state lawmakers who want to restrict cameras that catch you running a red light or speeding. Last session, the governor vetoed two bills dealing with photo enforcement. One of our guests, State Representative Steve Lebsock, told us this. Coloradoans overwhelmingly believe that red light cameras, especially if they're expanded onto more intersections are a violations not only of their civil liberties, but a violation of their right to privacy. Common sense dictates that a camera on every intersection violates your privacy. That's very sketchy at best. This is listener James Miller of Loveland. You don't have a uh, right to privacy in a public area. It, it's really stretching it to say that that's why you shouldn't have red lights. Uh, red light cameras. Folks at the Colorado Municipal League picked up on Representative Lebsock's phrase, cameras at every intersection. Megan Dollar, the CML's legislative and policy advocate, writes, there's a false notion that these are everywhere. That is not the case. Municipalities conduct evaluations and traffic studies to make informed decisions on where red light cameras and photo radar will be most effective. If you think there was a point we sped right past, let us know, and we may include it in our regular feedback segment, Loud and Clear. Click Contact at the top of CPRnews.org, hit us up on Facebook, CPR News, or tweet us at Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This week, we're looking back on the year in Colorado music. Today, our colleagues at CPR Classical share some of their favorite releases from 2015, including one from Sphere Ensemble, which describes itself as Denver's premier string ensemble. We are joined by Jeff Zemfeldi, music director at CPR Classical. Jeff, nice to see you. It's good to be here, Ryan. So we just heard uh, some of the music from Sphere Ensemble, uh, from the debut disc Divergence, which came out in September. Uh, What would you say is unusual about how they approach that Elgar piece? Well, I think what's great about the Sphere Ensemble is the joy that they bring to their playing. You know, they're a small ensemble. It's just 13 members, and they don't have a conductor. So what really happens on stage with them and in their performance is that those 13 people have to be really tuned into each other. And the amount of joy that they bring to what they do is, I think, what sets them apart. Also, they're blends of of different uh, eras of music. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, they started off as a pretty straight-ahead classical ensemble, but the members of the groups themselves... They participate in all sorts of rock bands and tango orchestras and all sorts of different kinds of groups. 
So they really infuse the ensemble with that diversity. They play rock music and they play pop songs. This disc has a cover of them doing the Sticks song, uh, Come Sail Away. <laughs> They've been known to do Katy Perry, Regina Spector in yep. their concerts. Muppet Show theme. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you've picked out a track that shows this pop side, uh, an arrangement of Hallelujah, the Leonard Cohen song. What's really great about this is the way that they elevate the song, really tying into you know Leonard Cohen's lyrics. He's talking about music in that song, and he's so tied into the the whole concept of song being this through line for people. And they bring a lot of elements of classical music into this pop song. So you get the the first verse of it, and they turn it kind of into a Gregorian chant feel almost, and it, it's just really lovely. Hallelujah, cover of the Leonard Cohen song from the Sphere Ensemble in Denver. Uh, Jeff, another pick on your list is a bluegrass musician. Lots of fusion so far. This is Jake Sheps. How did he end up on a classical list? Well, a few years ago, he did a disc where he and his quartet interpreted the music of uh, classical composer Bela Bartok. Bartok had a lot of tie-ins with folk music from Hungary. Hmm. And so they were looking at the way that that Hungarian folk music tied into American acoustic music and bluegrass. So that was a really neat project from him a few years ago. And so he took it one step further and this time went out and got real classical composers to write specifically for a folk ensemble. I mean, it's a straight ahead bluegrass quintet. So you've got banjo, mandolin, violin, guitar, and bass. But he's asked classical composers to imagine what those instruments can do. Exactly. And uh, the composers, I think, had a lot of fun playing around with blending the ideas that come from the the bluegrass and folk influence, but with a real compositional view. Hmm. This is a piece called Drawn, and it's by composer Matt McBain. A track from the album Entwined, Bluegrass musician Jake Sheps asks classical composers to lend their expertise to the bluegrass genre. The Takach Quartet in Boulder received some real recognition this year. Uh, they released a disc of music by Dmitry Shostakovich. What was the recognition? They were nominated for a Grammy. Nice. Yeah. So they're just about as close to a classical superstar as we have here in Colorado. I mean, they're internationally recognized. What do you like about this disc? What's great about it, I think, is, you know, they've been together in their current lineup for 10 years now. And when you've got a small ensemble like a, a quartet, the communication that happens between those four people is really central to the music. Yeah. And so having had that established ensemble now for 10 years, it's just really deepened and gone from being something that, that started off as just being very precise and very exact. And now it just has this deepness and this resonance. They really get involved with the music and each individual member of the quartet is contributing something unique and special. But yet 
the ensemble itself really has a cohesion to it. Yeah, it's this balance between individual personalities and then what happens as a collective. Exactly. The Takech Quartet from Boulder. Uh, CPR Classical included a pair of musicians from the University of Colorado, Boulder, on its list of uh, some of the year's best. What what was this disc? This is a disc that comes from two members of the CU Boulder faculty, one of whom is the viola player for the Takach Quartet, Geraldine Walther, and then also pianist David Korovar playing the music of Paul Hindemith. Proof that uh, musicians are often involved in multiple projects. I oh, exactly, to. exactly. This is a viola sonata that we're going to hear. Yes. And Hindemith himself was a viola player, so any of his viola music has a little special extra something to it. Seems uh, hard to talk about classical music in Colorado without mentioning the Colorado Symphony, and uh, they made your list. What music stands out? They they make a lot of music, obviously. Well, uh, it was really nice to have them back on record this year, releasing on a, a pretty major classical label, Hyperion, out of England. This was something that was a goal for music director Andrew Litton when he came on. He wanted to have the, the Colorado Symphony Orchestra recording and hearing it's, it's the— It's been a while, I guess? Well, it's been a while since they've recorded major new music okay. on, on a label, especially this size. This recording is of uh, music by Stephen Huff, the British composer? Stephen Huff, and also on that disc is a piece by Rafe Von Williams. And I think what struck me most about this disc was just how amazing the CSO sounds. It's easy for us to take them for granted. They're right here in our own backyard. But uh, hearing them in the context of the other major ensembles releasing discs this year, they, they really stand right up there in line with the best orchestras recording today. You're also hearing the Colorado Symphony Chorus. Interesting backstory, I guess, Jeff, on this British composer Stephen Huff, whose work they include on this disc. Yes, uh, as he was writing this piece, he had been working on it about three days and then was in a horrific car crash, rolled his car going about 80 miles an hour, and walked away from it, taking the score from the car with him in his hand. And as he was at the hospital waiting for a brain scan, he continued working on the piece in the waiting room at the hospital. So uh, it's really got an emotional weight to it from, from that experience. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And as 2015 comes to a close, we are consulting with the music aficionados in this building at Classical and Open Air. Today it's classical music, and uh, Jeff Zumfeldi is a music director at CPR Classical. He's sharing some highlights from classical musicians in Colorado. Uh, there is one more disc you wanted to point out by a vocal group called Roomful of Teeth. <laughs> yeah, of <love> that title. <laughs> now, they're not based in Colorado, but you thought they gave an especially memorable performance here. Yes. Last winter, 
they were through uh, right before this album of theirs called Render was released, and they did a performance at DU featuring members of the Colorado Symphony Orchestra in kind of a, a rearrangement. Normally, they're an a cappella group. And it was a very special performance. They've kind of become Colorado regulars. They were up at Bravo Vale Music Festival over the summer as well. They have a lot of different vocal techniques, this, this band. This is one of the, the their fortes is that they really explored a variety of different vocal techniques from around the world. And they went and found the people who were the masters at this so that they could really become expert at a whole host of different vocal techniques, tube and throat singing, and all sorts of different African vocal effects. What should we hear from them? Um, this is a, a piece that's kind of the anchor piece off of their disc render. The whole piece is called The Ascendant by a composer named Wally Gunn. It features a drum set playing along with the a cappella group. Did you ever find out why they called themselves Room Full of Teeth? <laughs> I, I think when you have eight people standing around singing at each other, especially doing all sorts of strange vocal effects, <laughs> opening their mouths in a, in a strange way, the answer sort of becomes obvious. <laughs> you see a lot, of, a lot of teeth. It's sort of a dental view. Thanks so much for your view on the year in classical music, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Jeff Zumfeldi is music director at CPR Classical. More year-end favorites at CPRclassical.org. Coming up, the first edition of Southern Colorado's first newspaper and other pieces of history that Coloradans voted as their favorites. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Each year, Coloradans can vote for what they think are the state's most important artifacts— the votes for 2015 are in, and Dana Echohawk is going to tell us about some of the winning artifacts. She is with Colorado Collections Connection. Dana, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. So one of the items on the list uh, is a cauldron, right. like for cooking. Yes. Cooking what? This is a large cast iron cauldron that was used uh, for the very first tofu that the White Wave Company made in Boulder, Colorado. And, you know, today tofu is kind of common in stores, grocery stores. But back in the 70s, it was almost a radical food idea uh, to provide nutrition and protein as a food. A soybean-based product called tofu would have been foreign to many when this cauldron was in use. It would. All right. <laughs> and you mentioned that it was an early tool for the company that became White Wave. Yes. Which is now huge in it, alternative foods. It is. Uh, Steve Demos started, founded the comp company and... Um, started using the cauldron and trying different recipes and this and that. And this is now at the Boulder History Museum, and they are the ones that nominated it. 
All right. There's a photo of this. If you link at cprnews.org, it's giant. There must have been a lot of tofu in that first cauldron. Yeah, it's very large. Another thing that I want to mention about the cauldron is it was in 1970. This is the first year that we've had artifacts nominated from um, the latter part of the 20th century. Usually artifacts are nominated from the 1800s or the early 1900s. All right. So this is something of a modern or contemporary uh, Contemporary artifact. Contender, yes. But still historic. Uh, previous winners uh, from past years include the Journal of the Pioneering Mountain Climber Albert Ellingwood, yes. uh, the Will from Frontiersman Kit Carson. Uh-huh. What are the criteria for making the list of what you call the state's most significant artifacts? We call for nominations in summer from our state's historical uh institutions that care and preserve artifacts around the state. And the only criteria is that they are not buildings. They can be documents, photographs, diaries, wills. They can be 3D items. Uh, Anything that that institution feels is significant goes into the nomination. But not buildings, uh, I suppose, because there are other ways of preserving those. Well, there is another organization in the state that works mainly with uh, historic preservations of structures. So we decided to focus uh, solely on collections. On collections, including another winner this year, shrapnel from an airplane crash near Denver in 1955. Uh, This was not an accidental crash. Tell us about the shrapnel and the the flight. Again, this is a later mid-century nomination. But in 1955, uh, United Airlines number 621 took off from Stapleton Airport. And 11 minutes after it took into the air, it exploded, killing all 44 people aboard and spreading debris all over Longmont farmlands. Um, It was a bomb that had been planted in the baggage uh, compartment. And this led to a call for baggage uh, scanning, which we have today. So it was significant uh, for that reason for um, implementing new legislation for yeah, the the flight 629 was brought down by a son, I think, who planted a bomb in his mother's suitcase. There's a link to our conversation about that particular story at cprnews.org. And uh, this comes um, from the Den- Denver Police Museum is in their Denver collection. Denver Police Museum. And the son that you're talking about was a Mr. Graham. His trial, I might mention, was also the first televised criminal trial, kind of like the OJ trial. Really? Yes. That I did not know. And you, too, can see this piece of historic shrapnel and the story it tells at cprnews.org. Another winner this year that interested me is a flyer from 1983, which invites wheelchair users to protest. Yes. Tell us about this. Denver Public Library nominated this uh, protest flyer, and it was from the American Disabled for Accessible Public Transit. And they invited, like you said, the wheelchair people from all over the U.S. to protest for accessible uh, transportation on public buses. And their chant was, we will ride. And that is a chant that went out across the U.S. So starting right here in Colorado, uh, we now have uh, lifts on buses and ramps in all public places. But it started in Colorado. We should say that uh, this year is the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So this is something of a precursor, I suppose, to that. Yes, it was. And this flyer says, I'm looking at it right now, ADAPT, that's the name of the organization, cordially invites you to an uproar. 
<laughs> and there is an image of a bus being flushed down a toilet. It gives you yes. a sense for how frustrated they were with the lack of accessibility at that time. It, and there was. Today, they have much more accessibility to ride public transportation. Also on the list, the first edition of the first newspaper published in southern Colorado. It was called the Colorado Chieftain, uh-huh. not the Pueblo Chieftain, as uh, the name is today. The issue is June 1st, 1868. Mm-hmm. It's taped up, but I- I'm surprised that it's in as decent shape as it is. It is, and newspapers are fun. They give a lot of history in the the way people thought and what justice was back in those days versus what it is today. Uh, How do you preserve... I'm thinking of the newsprint and newspaper that I have that's like two weeks old and deteriorating. How do you preserve something like that from 1868? This one was preserved by the newspaper office itself. It was bound, and for 145 years it sat in their archives before they decided to give it to the uh, Pueblo City and County Library District. What are some of the stories in this first issue? Well, one of the... uh, Right on the main... uh, pages the death of Kit Carson, the famous frontiersman, and uh, it simply states that General Kit Carson is no more. Is no more. No more. And then it goes on to describe his life in more detail. All right. It's succinct, but it certainly gets to the point. Yeah. You do this every year, this, this vote, this election, if you will, of uh, historic artifacts. Why? Well, Colorado Collections Connections is based at Auraria Library at the University of Colorado, Denver. And we do this to build awareness of the artifacts that are being cared for and preserved by our state's institutions. Um, And we open the voting to all of the public so that people know the collective history that these artifacts represent. And the gems, really, that are in archives all over the state, in, in communities big and small. They are. There's large uh, museums like History Colorado, but there's also very small museums and organizations like Gold Hill uh, Museum, which is a little tiny historic town up above Boulder, Colorado. Dana, thanks for running through some of the winners with us. Thank you. Dana Echohawk, Project Director for Colorado Collections Connection. You can see a full list of this year's winners and some photos, as we said, at cprnews.org. Also making the 2015 list, a tattered U.S. flag carried during the Civil War by the 1st Regiment of Colorado Volunteers, and papers from the first single female homesteader in Estes Park, who was also a successful businesswoman. After a break, a true crime writer ponders the nature of violence. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The joy of killing, the joy of seeing killing done, these are traits of the human race at large. Those eerie words come from Mark Twain. They also appear in the title of a new book from Denver true crime writer Harry McLean. He typically writes nonfiction based on gruesome small-town murders, but The Joy of Killing is a novel, one that deals with the nature of violence, why people engage in it, and whether all of us are capable of it. The Joy of Killing has been called dark, literary noir, and a philosophical thriller, I spoke with McLean in the fall. Harry, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Why write a novel versus another nonfiction true crime book? 
When you're writing nonfiction books, you're, of course, limited to the facts. And you can select the facts, you can interpret the facts, but you still need the facts. And you're always kind of saying to yourself, what if? What if I could have these people have this conversation two years earlier? What if I could have it placed in Southern California rather than Canada? And so at some point you say, well, maybe I'll just try making up the facts. And it sounds like a good idea, and it is a good idea, but uh, there's also the problem with letting your imagination run wild, too. I mean, you need to then find the structure to put on your creative impulse. That's right. It's a new muscle to exercise. Exactly. And how was it to do that, to go um, from writing true crime to a novel? It was it was interesting and difficult. At the same time, you're still absorbing. You know, when you're doing nonfiction, you're researching facts out there. And when you're doing fiction, you're still researching, but in a different way. You're kind of absorbing from the world and into yourself about, you know, your kind of interior journey. Yeah. In other words, researching for nonfiction is very external. It's about visiting the places that murders happened. It's about old paperwork and case files. Exactly. But there's a lot more introspection that has to happen for a novel. Particularly in this sort of novel where you have a narrator and the, the story is basically his interior journey. So that is you will end up poking around in yourself whether you choose to or not. And in this book, we are in the mind of a man, an unnamed college professor. He is tucked away alone in a house from his childhood to write about his life. He remembers, for instance, a run-in with the town pervert as a teen. He remembers his friend who drowned. He reflects on a teenage sexual encounter with a girl he met on a train. And he fantasizes quite often about violence, He's kind of unstable. He is an unstable narrator. So the the reader has to kind of stick with him because he's trying to sort out his own life. And that's his process. And the process drives drives the story itself. All he wants basically is clarity. He wants to understand the events of his life. He's got some black spots in there, some, some blank spots. And he just wants to come to the point where he knows what happened in his life. And then he's willing to let go of it. Hmm. Your professor character has written a book himself, uh, his own novel, and it is about a professor who kills his wife and has developed a theory about violence. And I'd like to have you read a passage um, from the book describing his outlook on violence. Research had convinced him that humans, like other animals, were essentially amoral. They behave in their perceived best interest 100% of the time. The only reason humans conform their behavior to social norms, like not stealing or committing murder, is that it's in their perceived best interest to do so. Given the right situation, we will all commit murder, without hesitation, in defense of self or others or even country. Now, you yourself, as an author, have looked very closely at murderers and murders. Do you believe that to be fundamentally true, that, that I'm not a murderer because it's not in my best interest to be, to be one, but that the second the cards change and that I see an advantage, I might become one? Absolutely. I mean, normally it would, it would be defensive if you're a parent and someone's going to you know, attack you or your child or something. I think actually most people would admit in that situation that they would commit whatever crime was necessary to preserve themselves. And of course, the law acknowledges, makes a place for that. Right. But I guess I mean a darker form. Well, a darker murder. form is, is basically what's, what's interested me is the way people separate human beings from nature. 
man versus nature. Man is nature. Man is as much nature as the as the anaconda or the shark or the elephant that stomps some some kid to death. So you have to put man on the spectrum of nature and look at his behavior, even his violent behavior, as natural as the behavior of any other animal. Your character, I think he's in class uh, teaching a group of students, some of whom get really rattled by his lectures because they get pretty graphic and, and they deal with some big heavy questions. And he at one point says, okay, imagine a woman being attacked by a big snake. Then imagine that woman being attacked by a man. We would look at this snake and we'd say, it's its nature to do what it's doing. And we might look at the man very differently. Right. Again, this idea of separating us from nature. Is is that the same impulse, the, the man who murders someone and the snake who murders someone? It's all behavior emanating from nature. And to back it up a little bit, it's, I think what people say is, well, man has free will. He can choose to do it or not to do it. And right. the anaconda doesn't. But take the individual who lacks impulse control, for example. He was not involved in the construction of his personality that lacked impulse control. There are two things that form all personalities. One is genetics and the other is environment. They're both done by well, by birth by one, and environment by five or six, you've set the personality. The individual was not involved in the architecture of that personality. So when you write true crime, do you start to sympathize or empathize with the murderers, a sense of they did this because they were compelled somehow to do so? I don't think I empathize with them. What I try and do is get into neutral so I can see them. You need to do that as a writer as well, but even... Even naturally, I try and see them from a neutral point of view and understand them uh, without judging them. We're speaking with the Denver writer Harry McLean, who is best known and has won many awards for his true crime writing, uh, but has now come out with his first novel. It's called The Joy of Killing. Uh, You've been a, a law professor, I think, and certainly held various legal positions over the past several decades. What's the connection between your work in the law presumably where you've run across some dark characters, um, and your writing, in which you absolutely have run across some dark characters. Well, I mean, the, the law is the social structure which controls our behavior and defines behavior that is deviant and what we're going to do about the deviant behavior. So that's it's also a very linear way of looking at life in the world and human behavior. All the time I'm in that world, I also know that it doesn't really fit on top of a lot of types of human behavior that we're very much aware of. That the law is a blunt instrument, you think? Exactly. Yeah. Be- because and, human behavior is as complex as we've been talking right. and, about. And the law categorizes it. This is its felony A, B, C, D, and E, and, and loses a lot of the complexity and the countercurrents of it. Should the law reflect that some killers kill because of biology? Um, I think it tries to do that in terms of insanity and so forth, but the insanity plea. But no, I, I think we need to judge people from a legal point of view and say you need – you know what you did makes you guilty of this. We need to put you here. We need to punish you. But we need to be honest about the fact uh, – we, we have to hold them responsible as citizens in a civilized world. But we need to be honest about why we're doing it. We're doing it because they're, they constitute a, a, a threat. They're not evil people in, in that sense, that they, they had a choice, that they you know, committed these crimes having been involved in the construction of the personality. I have to think that there are victims of murderers whose stories you've told 
who would deeply disagree with the fact that there's not evil. Absolutely. Um, particularly the the victims of Ken McElroy in the, in the book In Broad Daylight, which was my first book, which suffered at his hands. They have anger and resentment and and they carry that with them for the rest of their life. And I don't intend to, you know, diminish that in, in any fashion. I'm just trying to say, look at it from over here. Look at the behavior from a slightly different angle. What does it look like to you now? But doesn't that mean we also have to look at ourselves and what we are capable of ourselves? And that can be scary. Absolutely. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of people spend a lot of time constructing narratives of their life to disguise that possibility within themselves. I'm this, I'm that, I've got a law degree, I've got three children, I've done this in the world, and that's who I am, and there's no potential for anything else. Let's talk a little bit about your other books. So you've, um, as we've said, written about real-life murders. Uh, There's the book you mentioned, and in 2007 you followed the Mississippi trial of uh, Klansman James Ford Seale, charged with murdering two young black men in 1964. Does this kind of work have some lasting effect on you? The one that had the most effect on me was Once Upon a Time, and that was the story of a woman who was who recovered a repressed memory of her father murdering her playmate 20 years earlier. I got so far into the psychopathology of the people involved in that story for about three years' worth of research that I it was toxic, and I was toxic when it was over. And I didn't really realize it until I surfaced from it. I had become very much a part of that whole pathology and talking to people that are ill and are traumatized. If you do that long enough, it it starts to have an impact on you. And what is the mental equivalent of taking a shower and washing it all off? Um, driving to Lincoln, Nebraska and going to a University of Nebraska football game. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> kidding. I don't know. <laughs> Sports. 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 Something. Something to distract you. Absolutely. Does it still linger? Absolutely. When I think back on that book or somebody from that time period calls me, I stay in touch with people from all of these stories. And when they, when I speak with them, it'll start to resonate and come back and I'll start to recall some of it. And it's not always pleasant, but it's part of the experience of being a writer. Were you influenced by Truman Capote's In Cold Blood? Absolutely. That, that was the guiding book in my life. Um, I wouldn't put my book up with it, but this notion of being able to tell a story uh, a factual story using not using fiction techniques and basing it on a single crime was very was absolutely my motivation and and then when I read the story of the bully who'd been murdered by uh, by vigilante town on the main street of the small town in in uh, northwest Missouri it was like there it is there's your incident I want to read from a fascinating bit uh, um, from your bio. Okay, it says, on his 60th birthday, Harry threw a dart at a map pinned to his dining room wall. It landed on Dover, Delaware. One month later, Harry gathered a suitcase and $500 and took a bus to Dover, where for a year he lived on what he could earn. After driving a postal truck down the coast of Delaware in the dark night for a few months, Harry worked undercover as a prison guard at the maximum security prison in Smyrna. This book chronicling that year is still under construction. What was that adventure like? I mean, really just building a brand new life all of a sudden. Well, I mean, it it was an attempt to get outside the the normal constrictions of of my life and see what it was 
like to live on an hourly wage without any degrees, without any friends, without any support, and see if the world looked different to you that way, and if you started to seem different to yourself as well. I think people dream about this a lot. What would it be to be in someone else's shoes? But they're so bound by their lives and convention. How did you break away from all that? At the time, all I had was a house and a cat, and I gave gave the cat to a friend and rented the house out and sold my car and went out on a bus. and, And traveled light. Right. One suitcase. So you are working on an account of this that will be nonfiction or that you will fictionalize? I'm actually rewriting it as fiction now, having enjoyed the freedom that fiction allows you. It's got a memoir aspect to it. Obviously, there's truth to a lot of it. But I can combine characters. I can move around in time. And I think make it every bit as compelling a story. And do you think you'd do another one of these adventures where you throw a dart at a map and just decide to relocate? Um, some version of that. I'm not sure I would. My, my latest adventure is uh, that Julia and I, who's the woman I'm with, would like to – I don't know she'd like to, but the idea I have is just move to Brooklyn. Okay. Just take a bus to Brooklyn and live there for a year. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Award-winning true crime writer Harry McLean lives in Denver. His first novel is called The Joy of Killing. We talked about it earlier this year, and you can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. Special thanks to Brad Turner this week. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.